hard words, uh, names to be specific, but um, I'm thankful for Pastor Dave and the elders here that don't shy away from chunks of scripture like this, because this is a tough one. <laughs> Not just to read, but the content. <laughs> so, okay. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. <clears throat> there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, then she took her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to the Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own. 
or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zura. Thanks, Dana. It was exciting. I've been waiting for two years to get to this passage. (laughs) Came back from sabbatical and set my mind on this passage ever since. I'm not kidding. And in fact, in 20, 20, 20, what's 99, 22 years of being a pastor, I have never once felt an inclination to preach on this passage. This is one of those passages that almost no one would choose to preach on if not for a genuine conviction that God's people need all of God's word. So let me say that same thing. God's people need all of God's word. Let me say that same thing again in two different ways. I hope to impress this upon you. There's a reason we preach the way that we preach at Grace Church, and this is near the heart of it. First, we're preaching on Genesis 38 because we believe the whole of God's words. The whole of God's word, not merely the easier or more overtly spiritual passages, but the whole of God's word is what we need, what God's people need. It is necessary, all of it, and sufficient to live as God intends. Grace, it really is an awesome thing to realize that in his word, God has given us all that we need to know to please him and to live rightly in the world that he has made. But that also means that the Bible, all of it is what we need, including passages like this one. So that's that's saying God's people need all of God's word one way. Let me say it a second way. We're preaching on Genesis 38 because God because God tells us in the Bible what we need better than our feelings do. Do you remember that? God's word tells us what we need better than our feelings do. In other words, we can we can or we only know many of our needs because God has told them that they are our needs. The Bible is kind of like a prescribed cancer scan in that way. You may have dire health concerns that you do not know about, that you don't feel and you would not know about until it's too late, if not for some preventative screening called for by your doctor. Again, in other words, you might have come here with a a strong feel feeling to know what God's word says about your struggling marriage or wayward kids or the pain of a difficult relationship or or maybe a recent job loss 
You might feel those deeply. And, and you might want, therefore, to hear a sermon on one or more of those things. And so, of course, God's Word speaks to those things. And, and you would be well served to hear a sermon on any of them. And yet the fact that this passage, Genesis 38 and all of its glory, is in the Bible, tells us that we also need to know about things like leveret marriage, <laughs> which you've probably never even heard that term before, but you need to know about it. And the messiness of the chosen family of God, the origin of the line of Jesus. You need to know these things, even though you probably never felt the need to know them. You didn't come in here this morning wondering about how God expected one brother to fulfill the line of his dead brother through his wife. You you probably never felt the need for that. But God's word tells us that you do need to feel the need for that, and so here we are. Many times, Grace, our greatest needs aren't immediately felt by us. (laughs) I want you to get about three things out of this sermon, and that's one of them. Many times our greatest needs aren't immediately felt by us. This passage is an important reminder of that. Again, the Bible alone, all of it, every word, is truly sufficient to live in a manner pleasing to God. Therefore, if we are to know God ourselves and the will of God for us, we need all the Bible, including Genesis 38. Let's pray that God would help us to clearly see all that we need from this passage, to feel it deeply, and then to live courageously in light of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. I'm more thankful now than at the beginning of the week before I started preparing to preach on it. I, <laughs> I thank you that throughout the week, you you helped me to see your glory in new ways, to, to be awed that this passage is in the Bible. And I, I pray that through the way I present it to this people now, your people, that they would grow in their awe and wonder at your glory and greatness and in, in mainly expressed through your salvation of people like us. You saved us, not because we deserved it, not because we were worthy of it, not because we've performed better than those who have not yet been saved, but because in your love you chose to set your mercy and grace upon us. We weren't worthy, we didn't deserve it, but you are kind to us. Help us to see that more and more and more as we, as we read your word, as we study your word, as we hear your word preached, and as we look at Genesis 38 this morning. I pray that it would change us. That it would, that we would be more like Jesus in every way this morning. In particular, in our gratitude for him and our willingness to proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. I pray all this in his mighty name. Amen. So, two, two immediate questions. Uh, why is Genesis 38 challenging? I hope it's pretty obvious to you with Dana having just read it, but I want to give you a few reasons for that. Maybe even a couple you didn't think of immediately. And secondly, I do want to name a few explicit reasons why Genesis 38 is in the Bible before we get to the text itself. So why is it challenging? In case it isn't obvious, it's challenging for a few reasons. It's hard because the reason for its inclusion in Genesis, but especially in the Joseph story, might not be obvious right away. Why why is this in here? If you pull 38 out, and read 37, where Joseph is sold into slavery and sent off to Egypt, and then jump to 39, it seems fairly seamless. It, it just goes straight through with Joseph. And so it's hard because the reason this is in here, sort of as a, an insert, isn't on the surface obvious. 
it's hard as well and, and mostly hard, but this is also, I think you'll see where most of the glory is. It's hard because of the several acts of blatant, unabashed immorality, sexual in particular. And who likes to talk about that, especially in a context like this? It's hard because of the severe judgment of God. Two people drop dead in this at the hand of God. How do you explain that? Without much explanation at all, he took, God took the lives of two of Judah's sons. And it's hard because of the ambiguity, the moral ambiguity of Tamar's actions. Uh, I read more commentaries this week than I normally do, and, and I found this really interesting. I didn't expect this. There's a pretty even divide between scholars arguing that Tamar was a heroine in the, in the likeness of Ruth or Esther and her being a, a prostituting deceiver, a sinner like the rest of them. There's a pretty even divide in that. And so it's hard to work through even things like that. I imagine most of that was obvious. But the question then is, in light of all of that, why is this in the Bible? Why did God inspire a passage like this? Why, why would he providentially reign over circumstances like this? I want to give you some immediate historical and spiritual reasons. Immediately, meaning in this specific context, context it, it fills us in a little bit on what happened. We're going to pick up about after about a 20-year span of Joseph being in Egypt next week in chapter 39. And it gives us a little bit of what was going on with his brothers who will reappear later in the story during that 20 years. It also serves to provide a sharp contrast. We're meant to see this sharp contrast between this life and, and in particular the sexual immorality that Judah is living out and then we're about to see Joseph, the other brother, living a completely different life as he's tempted by a particular woman uh, in the next couple of chapters. So immediately it helps us to see what was going on in this 20-ish years. It also helps us to see the sharp contrast between Joseph and his brother. And additionally, it laid the groundwork for something we're going to come to later in Genesis. The next time we see Judah, he's going to be a completely different guy. This is the guy we already saw, hated his brother, sought to profit from his enslavement, and in this passage is filled with wicked deeds. But we're going to see him in just a, a bit later in Genesis as one who would offer himself as a ransom for his brother. It's likely that God used this the humbling he received here to change him. And then that is significant encouragement for us. If we can if we can see the transformation that happens in Judah. We can see there's transformation available by the power of God for any of us. So those are some of the immediate reasons. Historically, this passage is yet another description of the humble, checkered history of the people of God. The first recipients of Genesis, which were the myriad descendants of Abraham, did not spring from a righteous plant. Even more Significantly, it explains how David and then later Jesus came through the line of Judah. We, we sing songs about how Jesus came from the line of Judah. This is him. <laughs> this is the Judah through whose line we came, through, through whom Jesus came and our faith in him came. That's staggering, isn't it? And spiritually, for us today, it helps us to see the true nature. Get this, get this grace. This is where we're going to come to right before the end, and I think you'll be able to praise God for this. 
spiritually. It helps us to see the true nature of the effects of being born in Adam. In the garden, Adam ate a fruit that he shouldn't have. And God's charged him was, do not, you can eat of anything, but not that. And if you do, you will surely die. He ate it. He died immediately spiritually and brought into mankind death physically. We are born, all of us, in Adam with that kind of corruption that it brought in. This shows us, this passage shows us the true nature of the effects of being born in Adam. And therefore, in crystal clear terms, Grace, that our only hope, the only hope of any child of Adam, is the mercy and grace of God. There is no sense, hear this, all of you, the proud among you, hear this. The humble among you, hear this. There is no sense in which God's people are God's people according to our own performance and worth. There is no sense, without exception, get this, because this is you and this is me. Without exception, God chose the unremarkable, and then the unremarkable, having been chosen by God, proved their unremarkableness. That's the nature of being born in Adam. So in short, for many reasons that might not be obvious on the surface, Genesis 38 plays an important role in the development of the biblical storyline and in the message that salvation would come to the people of God only by grace alone, through faith alone, and then through the line of one of Judah alone, Jesus Christ. So with that, three main points to this text. Here they are. Sin is everywhere in this passage. I think you've seen that already. I'm going to tell you some of it. Sin is everywhere in this passage and in this people. Number two, righteousness is here. There are glimpses of it, but it's scarce. And third, and most importantly, I hope you leave here in this, combined, those two things teach us that God's grace does not come to God's people because we deserve it. So let's go to the beginning. Sin is everywhere. Every week, I sit down, I read the text. I read it two or three times, four times. I pray over it. I ask God to help me to see what's in it as he intends us to see it. I try then to get the argument of the text in my head and and then articulate it to myself. Here's what I think Moses was getting at, or Paul or or James or whoever I'm preaching on. Here's what I think they were trying to communicate. Here, Here's how I think they're trying to communicate it, and here's what I think that means for us. I try to get my head around all of that. Well, having done so in the text this morning, without a doubt, one of the keys to understanding this passage is recognizing that it's just filled with sin. It's got sin of all kinds from men and women. It's got repeat offenders and one-time offenders in this passage. It is chalked full of sin, significant sin. And along with that, can you can you guys see, and I'm going to point this out to you, the casualness with which these people entered into their sin. It's not even as if we see much acknowledgement that it was even sin, as grievous as it is, as blatant as, as it is, as disgusting in some cases as it is. So let's let's talk about sin for a minute. Let's let's look at sin. Judah first. He sinned in all kinds of ways. Almost from the first words of the chapter, we're confronted with it. He left his brothers. Remember, they had just sold Joseph, one of their brothers, one of the 12, into slavery. He was being shipped off to Egypt, so the 11 brothers remained. Judah broke off from them and then immediately goes into sin. You see it, verse 2. He took a Canaanite woman for his wife. Given what we know about his father, Grandfather and great-grandfather, there is no chance that Judah didn't know that it was wrong 
to marry a Canaanite. Listen to the words of of Genesis 24. Now, Abraham was old. This is his great-grandfather. Abraham was old and well-advanced in years, and he said to his servant, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, Isaac, from the daughters of the Canaanites. Genesis 28. Then Isaac, his son, Judah's grandfather, called Jacob, his father, and blessed him and directed him and said to him, you must not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. He knew it and he chose to do it anyway. What's more, the word used here, took in the Hebrew and the context in which it's used suggests that this was a lustful taking on Judah's part. This is not the picture of a man filled with honor seeking a wife with whom he meant to live holy for the glory of God. It is the picture of a man, which we'll see again in just a little bit, who could not control his physical desires and sought to meet them wherever they could be found. A bit more subtly, you remember just just the last passage in Genesis when Jacob thought his son Joseph had been torn apart by wild beasts? Do you remember his response? He wept Bitterly and inconsolably. He, he was overwhelmed with grief that his son would be taken from him. Did you notice what happened here as Dana read, describing the death of Judah's sons? Did you notice what actually wasn't there? It was complete silence concerning any grief at all in Judah over the actual loss of his two oldest sons. Every description of Judah to this point in Genesis is one of selfishness and callousness. Just a few verses later, we're told that Judah blatantly and knowingly lied to Tamar about giving her to his son. She had been married to his two older sons. He promised her the third when when he was old enough. But the text tells us in verse verses 11 and 14, that he lied to her, and he intentionally lied to her. He he did it right from the beginning. He feared losing his third, and so he had intentionally deceived his daughter-in-law. It's perhaps understandable, but still sinful. Perhaps worst of all, particularly because of the casual way in which he went about it, we see Judah's sin in that he sought out what he thought to be a cult prostitute. His wife had passed away, He went down, it says, to the sheep shearing. This was a festive time. It it would have been a big, giant party, mostly debaucherous. He went down there with a friend. His inhibitions were likely down, way down, which it seems is exactly what he was looking for. What's more, after having married a Canaanite woman, he'd inevitably experienced the culture in which she was a part of. And in this particular time, the Canaanites practiced and encouraged sexual deviancy as a means of enhancing the fertility of one's flocks. Judah knew this. This sin was so grievous that later in Hosea, the prophet Hosea says this, God declared through him, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. The prophets had to call out the men of God for this exact behavior, largely because of Judah here. Finally, we see Judah's sin in that he was ready to execute 
extreme justice on Tamar. Let her be burned when he found out that she was pregnant by sexual immorality, only to let the whole thing drop when his own sin in the matter was found out. Verse 24. That's his Judah. His first son, Ur, was wicked to the point that God put him to death. Verse 7. He was not, Judah was not the only one. Apparently his first son was wicked as well. We're not told the nature of his wickedness, just that it was so serious that God struck him down. No commentary. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Judah's second son, Onan, was wicked to the point that God put him to death as well, verses 8 through 10. Unlike his brother, however, the text tells us exactly what his sin was, the nature of his wickedness. He used his brother's wife, who had become his wife, he used her, Tamar, for physical pleasure while depriving her of the child he'd promised to give. Custom, and then later the law of God, Deuteronomy 25, this is leverant marriage, called for him to bear a child through his deceased brother's wife in order to carry on his brother's name. Instead, he helped himself to the pleasure of his brother's wife, but not the responsibility that ought to have gone along with it. I, I hope I hope you're feeling a little queasy in your stomach. This is, this is disgusting stuff. We're still, the original language makes it clear that this wasn't a one-time thing, but an ongoing practice. His sin was repeated and significant, and the Lord God put him to death. Tamar lied and slept with Judah as a prostitute, 13 and 19. As I mentioned earlier, this is a somewhat controversial uh, section in, in this passage. I, I don't claim to have the final word on this, but I will say this. There is no sense in which she had the right to a child. No one does. There is no sense in which using sexual immorality, therefore, to get one, there's no sense in which that was truly honoring to God. While her, her actions, again, like, like some of Judah's, might have been somewhat understandable, Tamar ought to have trusted in God to be faithful, even if Judah was not. She ought to, she ought not to have taken matters into her own hands. The facts that Genesis doesn't comment directly on the morality of her decision and, or that the plan worked, those facts don't justify what she did. In this, there are lessons for us too. Grace, namely, that the sins of others never justify sin in our own life. And the fact that something works, the fact that something works doesn't make it right. Pragmatism is a terrible measure. Of morality. Here's the last one. Judah's friend was complicit in his sexual immorality, 20 to 23. Finally, we see even more sin in Hera, Judah's friend. He was complicit in his seeking out of a prostitute and complicit in his payment for it. It's really staggering to me. Just, just think of this. It, it's sort of easy to separate ourselves from what's actually happening here, but just think of this. It's, it's like this. Just think of how casually he approaches all of this. Imagine, imagine being so brazen in your sexual immorality, so brazen in it that you have no problem talking about it with your friend. That Judah was so brazen in this. It was so normal to him that he has no problem talking about it with his buddy. So brazen, in fact, just imagine being so hardened and callous to sin. That he calls up his buddy and he says, hey, I, I need to pay for my sexual morality 
but you're closer. Could you do that for me? Could you go pay the woman that I thought was a prostitute, a cult prostitute? Now imagine a friend being so brazen as to say, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll head right on over there. I'll, I'll take care of that for you. And so brazen not only to do that, but to ask around, hey, any of you guys, he says, he walked up to the men of the town. Any of you guys seen her? <laughs> I have a friend. I got to pay her. The, the, the sin is just so sick and twisted and calloused. And it's all over in this passage. Again, to understand this passage is to see it for what it is. A sin-filled account of a particular time in the history of the chosen people of God. It is the largely disgusting account of a, of a handful of events in the line of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage helps us to see the sinfulness of sin and helps us reckon with the fact that we have all inherited the same nature that produced these things from our first father, Adam. Our sins might take different forms. They might look a little different. They might be a little less brazen or a little less out in public. But we are not fundamentally different in nature from the ones that committed such obviously sinful acts in this passage. This passage teaches us not to be like the Pharisees who in Jesus' day prayed, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collectors. That's the first thing to see. Here's the second. There are, in the midst of all of this, small flickers of righteousness. As bad as things were in this passage, By God's grace, they weren't as bad as they could have been. That's what we call common grace. In the midst of all the sin and death, we catch a few glimpses of righteousness. Three three in particular, and all in Judah. Judah attempted to keep his word. How sick is this? (laughs) We got a mine for righteousness. He he attempted to keep his word by paying (laughs) his supposed prostitute. It's hard to know what his true motivations might have been, but there's at least a hint of honesty here. Second, Judah acknowledged his hypocrisy when confronted with it, at least on a certain level. Verse 26. This is an echo of Hosea's passage we read earlier. It comes in Judah's confession that Tamar was more righteous than he was. Having been found out as the man who made Tamar pregnant by immorality, Judah exclaimed, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son. As I mentioned earlier, this is likely a key reason why the story is in the Genesis account. It is here in part to help explain Judah's transformation between the hard, calloused man who sinned in such spectacular ways in this passage and up to this point, and the one who would offer himself as collateral when his brothers re-encountered Joseph in Egypt. Here's the third glimpse, semi-repentant. Judah was semi-repentant of his sin. Uh, In response to all this, there's at least a mild form of repentance in his refraining from further intimacy with Tamar. He falls short of truly acknowledging his guilt. There's no evidence at this point of genuine brokenness, and yet there is a, a glimmer of righteousness here. And again, here's the thing, Grace. We're meant to see ourselves in this. Unlike, or until, until, the regenerating, saving, transforming grace of God comes upon us, we too are a tidal wave of sin and a trickle of common grace goodness. 
While we might be tempted to look away from the spectacular sins of the Bible, like some described here, we're meant to look right at them as a means of recognizing them in our own hearts, as a means of causing us to throw ourselves upon God for the mercy he will always give to those who seek him. And that leads to the final point. It just you got to feel this. I'm going to step away from the manuscript for one second because I, I need you guys to feel this. What you're meant to see is the cosmic scales of justice here. Just think about this. What do we have here? We have in one pile these spectacular sins, these grievous sins. Why is this in the Bible? It's to help us to see that these sins are ours in Adam. This is us. We too have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. We too have committed high treason against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We were made by God to glorify and enjoy him forever. But we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so on one side, we see the wicked deeds of the people in this passage. And the scales of justice are weighed heavy there. And these tiny flickers of of righteousness, these tiny glimpses of people sort of doing what's right. That's that's what we're born with. That's that's us. And so the point of that is not to beat you up. We we have more than just Genesis 38 in the Bible. It's not to beat you up, but it is to hold a mirror up to all of us because until you see this, until you see that's your scale of justice as well as mine and as well as Judah's, until you see that you do not know to run to God. You do not know to throw yourself upon him as your only hope for mercy and grace. You do not know that grace is amazing. That's why we sing it. And so with this, we get a glimpse into our own hearts. It's not always obvious to us. If you grew up in a Christian home, you maybe don't look like this on the outside. But this is a passage of hope. It doesn't look like this because this is just a part of the story. But the story goes on to the line of Judah and Jesus Christ who does something for the scales of justice. The sin of God's, the great sin of God's people combined with the small glimpses of righteousness come together to remind us that God's people are his people. Any, any, ever, including us, not on account of our performance or worth, because this is our performance and worth, but by the grace of God alone. More than anything else, we need to remember that this is the story of one of God's chosen people. Indeed, again, it is the story of the line through which Jesus Christ would come. And yet, and that once again is an awesome reminder that if anyone is to become a child of God, it will never be because of anything in us. Believe it or not, those things are embedded in the final paragraph. Look at 27. Did you throw it up there? Look at 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew his hand back, behold, his brother came out first instead. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. How is all that embedded in that? In this strange birth story, it's another strange birth story, we find another example of God's confounding the wisdom of the wise. It was through Perez. All you kids who sang Matthew's begats, you already know this. It was through Perez that Jesus came. 
Perez was the younger, not the older son. He was born out of wedlock to a pagan woman and her prostitute-seeking father-in-law. Who besides God himself would ordain such a line for the Savior of the world? All of this, along with the rest of the story of God's people, the Israelites, was designed by God to show with absolute clarity what the Apostle Paul would later say in just 32 words. The entire Old Testament says is meant to be a visible picture of us, or for us, of what the Apostle Paul would say in just 32 words. Again, the biblical stories like Genesis 38 combine to make unmistakable the fact that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing. What's your own doing? It's this. It's these spectacular sins. And this, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. These are our works. So that no one may boast. The simple reality is that just as no one could look to Abraham's children and think, look to Judah and think, yeah, he definitely deserved to be saved by God. God was wise to pick him on account of his moral uprightness and steadfast faithfulness. No one would read this passage and think that. Just as that's the case with Judah, no one who is able to look at this passage and see what life is like in Adam, which is to say what our life is like apart from Christ. No one with any even partial glimpse into their own heart revealed here would do anything but cry out to God for mercy. And so would you do that today, Grace? Would you do that afresh this morning? If you've never done that before, if you have never understood the nature of your sin before a holy God and the need for his mercy, would you cry out to him today? Not because you deserve it, but because God is merciful and gracious and will give it to all who seek it. And if you have already, if your hope is in Christ, Would you renew your hope in God today through Jesus and walk in the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do for his glory as we await his return, the coming of our Lord Jesus.